Hey folks, Gerald Kirk here, and I'm excited to share that this season of the Higher Ground Society podcast is supported in part by the Alabama Humanities Alliance, a state affiliate of the National Endowment of the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of Alabama Humanities Alliance or the National Endowment for the Humanities. Now, let's get to the show. Here today, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is Lonnie Ward, and he's playing the old time dulcimer, which is made in the Appalachian Mountains near Boone, North Carolina. And he's going to play a song. The name is Tom Dooley. Tom Dooley was a man that was in Wilkes County years ago. And we have Lonnie and Russell Ward with the guitar. Go ahead, Lonnie, and play Tom Dooley on the old time dulcimer. <laughs> And we're back for this second episode of season three of the Higher Ground Society podcast. And I'm super excited um, to kick off yet another kind of humanities uh, representative from the Alabama um, landscape. Today I have with me Bergen Matthews, who has his hands in a lot of different things. So I want to let him introduce yourself. Hi, Bergen. Tell, tell hey, us Gerald. Tell you. Uh, all right, sure. Uh, I'm Bergen Matthews. I'm speaking to you from Birmingham, Alabama. I live in Birmingham. I uh, am a writer and a radio host, and I am the director of a new nonprofit called the Southern Music Research Center. Um, yeah, how's that? That that's good. But you know, <laughs> you like as you already know, like I'm nosy, right? So I'm gonna like dig into like some of your background before you yeah, sure. well, you were writing. I guess you've been writing for a minute, mm-hmm. but like before you started focusing primarily on the Southern Music Research Center, um, you were a teacher, yes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So tell yeah, us I, more uh, about well, that. yeah, I've um been an English teacher um for uh 17 years. Mm-hmm. I uh this School year that just ended in May was my first year in 17 years, not in the classroom. So mm-hmm. that's a sort of new shift for me, which is why I left that out of my brief introduction because I'm not <laughs> gainfully employed right now by a school system. But uh, but yeah, I um, I've taught English uh, mostly to high school seniors. Uh, I've taught I've been fortunate to teach creative writing for a number of years, nice. as well as film studies. Um, so I am um, in addition to uh, yeah, the work that I do with music and with writing and with kind of documentary projects, I am a teacher at heart as well. Um, so yeah, that's a big part of my background too, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. And I commend you for your service. Salute <laughs> to you. Uh, no, for real, because especially these day and age, um, educators, I don't think get enough, nearly enough uh, kudos and recognition for the work that they've done. So um, that's really awesome that you were teaching. Um, what grades were you teaching? Like what, what, so uh, English and so it sounds like it was the the, the higher grades. Not you weren't teaching Mostly kindergarten seniors, but I'm, oh yeah, high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will, we'll just say high school. But in that time, I mean, almost every year I was a teacher of high school seniors. You know, AP senior mm-hmm. English, just you know the regular senior English. Um, but any teacher will tell you you get moved around a lot. So I've kind of taught 
all the grade levels from nine up. <laughs> you know, sure. Nothing beneath that. Nothing beneath that. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, a lot of time in high school classrooms. So here's the thing. Okay. Teachers are great, but also I was going to be a teacher <laughs> once once upon a time. Yeah. But I had a moment. I was like, you know what? This is I don't need to be in charge of anybody else's child uh, or children at this point. So let me just do a hit a UE and do something else. What convinced you, or what led you to get into teaching to begin with? Um. Well, I um I really loved books and love books mm-hmm. um and teenagers uh teenagers get a, like a bad rap sure teenagers are awesome yeah and so especially when i was like um i started teaching i guess in my late mid to late 20s um not straight out of college um but i yeah i i love being around teenagers and i love being around books and so here you put them both in the same room and uh see what happens that to me is a lot of fun um absolutely so, I also, um, I always just kind of could picture myself as a teacher. I always, you know, from the time I was a teenager, imagined that at some point for some amount of my life, I would teach. I never really mm-hmm. thought I would do it forever. Um, but I always kind of pictured myself in that role at some point. So yeah, I, I thought, um, yeah, I like books. I like kids. Um, Let's see how this goes for a little while. And I really didn't even intend, I thought I'll do this for a few years, you know, but, <laughs> you know, 17 years is a rather long time. Yeah. Uh, but as I did, um, I did really fall in love with being in a room with teenagers talking about books. Like, see? that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. It's really special because, again, I was like, no thanks. Uh- <laughs> So it's so crazy because I was going to be, I was going to, I was studying to be a high school history teacher. That was the goal. Um, But like all my pre-teaching work um, was kind of like in middle school, like stuff. So I like, I did a, like I did um, observation in like a a seventh or eighth grade uh, middle school class in Opelika. And I was like, "Mm, I don't think this is, this is it. Uh, But it's so true what you said. High schoolers are, or children in general are awesome. I, I was what attracted me to the the secondary education level was that you know you do have these young people who are like starting to conceive of the world and have their own ideas hopefully right, um, right. I think it's even more so with kids these days which I sound I'm 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 dating myself I'm, it's not like I'm dating myself I'm like what um, but I, there's a distinct difference I feel like maybe just like the few years I noticed the few years behind behind me whenever I graduated high school there's like a difference between like the type of youth that are out there right and so like it's definitely very very interesting to work with them and i'm sure you have a lot of fun stories and great memories from from that time oh, yeah. yeah 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 for sure and i um yeah i mean if you were almost gonna teach history i mean like not to knock math or anything but being yeah, in a room can, talking about books math. or talking about history we're like engaged with ideas and you know uh like the discussion is what what I loved um, in that, and that was true in teaching film as well, and obviously mm. teaching creative writing. You know, and I, I know I just said this, but it deserves repeating that teenagers are really smart and they're funny yeah. and they're um, they're unafraid. I mean, I know they are. Afraid. Everybody's afraid of something. Sure. Teenagers are afraid of lots of things, but in a lot of ways, teenagers don't have a lot of the um, fears that keeps adults from you know fully being who they are or finding out who they are in this vulnerable public kind of way. Yeah. So um yeah, I'm uh 
yeah it was a good yeah, time absolutely and I, I think again even more so i'm I'm really really focused in on the difference between like generations and like you know studying gen z and gen x and the baby boomers and stuff but like you said that they're they're um you just said that they are unaf they are afraid, but also in a way unafraid. I feel like this this past generation, this current generation, is even more so fearless. Like they're kind of scary. <laughs> like they will let you know what's on their mind. And again, it is very fascinating uh, to watch and to to be a witness to. And it's kind of interesting. Again, I'm, I'm making it sound like I'm eighty years old, but I'm really interested. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to seeing what the generation behind me again. I'm, I'm kind of at the end of. Uh, or middle or end of um, the millennials, I'm just really interested to see what they're going to do behind us. Because mm -hmm. again, even my niece and nephew who are like 10 and 5, they're so scarily smart. And <laughs> like I'm just like, whoa, it's going to be really interesting to see what you're like in, in you know, 10 years. So yeah, uh, that's that was a very interesting introduction to this, <laughs> this conversation. We never talked about the youth like that before on this show. But uh, thank you for that. Um, so, but before you... Um, let's talk about your connection to Alabama. So you are Alabama. obviously in Birmingham, yeah. but just before we started, I thought you were a foreigner, <laughs> uh, or at least an outside of Alabama. I forgot, but what? you said that. So tell us, you you grew up here in Alabama. Um, I did. But where where were did you, you think born? I was from? Where did you think I was from? I thought you, but I think I'm getting you confused with one of my other um, colleagues. Uh, I thought you were from North Carolina. I did live briefly in North Carolina, and I love North Carolina. My heart is also in North Carolina. So, I mean, in addition to Alabama and teaching and a lot of places. Sure. But, yeah, I have North Carolina affinities. But I grew up in Montgomery. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, I went uh, – yeah, I'm from Montgomery, and I stayed there till I graduated college. I went to college in New York State. I moved from there to Asheville, North Carolina, okay. to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to Birmingham. Gotcha. That's where the North Carolina comes from. So did you go to Chapel Hill or? I went, yeah, I went, well, I went to grad school at UNC. Um, okay. I got a um, degree in folklore there. Um, and prior to that, like I said, I just, uh, right out of college, I, uh, I moved to North Carolina. Um, <laughs> well, like I said, I, so I went to college in New York state I graduated thinking I would move back south. Sure. Um, I didn't even know. I still, I guess, I thought of the South then as being sort of monolithic in a way. Like I'm from Alabama. I thought North Carolina was the same kind of thing. And for four years in New York, I got you know pretty tired of people like being like, "Oh, you're from Alabama? Yeah. What is that like?" I mean, and saying really insulting things about what they thought Alabama was like. Sure. Um, and I, I mean, not to dismiss the problems that Alabama has, but I mean, really, like, you know, do you have plumbing kind of stuff? Like, right, seriously, yeah. ridiculous. Not even trying to be funny. Yeah. And even my professors would make comments like that. So I moved to North Carolina thinking I was going back south. And in North Carolina, everybody was like, you're from Alabama? What is that like? <laughs> so I learned something about the uh, – yeah, about something. Um, sure. Uh, but where was I going with that? Yeah, I moved to Western North Carolina just kind of to be um, surrounded by uh, – some of the kinds of music that I loved, like old time string band music and fiddle and banjo music and, mm -hmm. and be surrounded by the mountains and, uh, yeah. and stuff like that. So that's what drew me to North Carolina in the first place. And I stuck around long enough to go to grad school as well. Gotcha. I think that's why North Carolina stuck out 
to me with your your story because also went to grad school kind of um at unc too so i think I'm, i was holding on to that that uh little connection that we had there um unfortunately i did not live there my, i was a, it was a distance learning program for me but it's an incredible but i i this is where i want to go with this conversation in terms of like your interest in old-timey stuff as you, as you said just a second ago and i think north carolina i mean every obviously north all being old-timey stuff is all over the place but north carolina that um southern appalachian area is like rife with like a very deep like old-timey way and i'm actually really obsessed with it myself in fact i'm trying this summer i'm trying to hike a lot in the area and like north georgia and west north carolina like you said in east tennessee soup it's the land of dolly parton right like <laughs> <laughs> like so it's it's obviously enchanted it produced dolly parton among a whole lot of right. folks but before we get there though how did you yeah, sure. where was your like where did this affinity for old-timey stuff come from well um <laughs> Well, for mu if for music specifically, I mean, if by old timey stuff you mean history, <laughs> I always liked history. And in fact, when it came to teaching English, like I was on the, um, uh, you know, I, it was almost a coin toss whether I became an English teacher or a uh, history teacher. I was sure. an American studies major, okay. and uh, the way that that worked, it was d interdisciplinary, and we kind of selected a couple of disciplines to do most of our work in and so all of my undergraduate work was very english literate like literature american literature and american history centered um so yeah i love history but music was um i i love music as a way to access history and yeah. um a defining thing for me i mean even as a kid i was i think pretty voraciously curious about music if that's a thing uh yeah when i was in 10th grade um my dad gave me a cassette tape and i don't know why or how he got it like because this was not music he listened to either but for whatever reason he came across this cassette tape of woody guthrie <laughs> and was like would you like to have this and i was sure and it was still you know wrapped in plastic so i took it and um you know, and I had just, well, I must have been 16 because I had just started driving. And so I put that cassette tape in my car and anybody that I'm who was friends with in high school and spent time in my car will know that Woody Guthrie and Fats Waller also and uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie Me. Like there is a very specific musical line vibe in my car, but that uh, <laughs> it started with that Woody Guthrie tape and um it, you know, people who know Woody Guthrie, um, at least on the superficial level, will associate him with, you know, sort of topical songwriting and perhaps some protest songwriting and This Land is Your Land and this very prolific um, creator of original songs rooted in tradition, but, you know, very famous as a songwriter. But the Woody, and I love all of that, but the Woody Guthrie recordings that mean the most to me um, happened to be some of the ones were the, which were on this tape, um, which were these recordings he made in the 40s with a guy named Cisco Houston um, okay. and and Sonny Terry, the harmonica player, is on a bunch of them, and uh, Bess Lomax Halls is on some of them playing okay. mandolin. And, and it's this loose knit, like ragged bunch, and they're they're like digging into just a shared repertoire um, of 
of of song traditions mm. and it ranges you know there's blues songs and you know cowboy songs and gospel songs and you know old time kind of fiddle tunes minus the fiddle but they'll you know do you know with vocals and harmonica and a lot of whooping sourwood mountain and stuff like that and um and cisco houston will sing this high harmony along with woody guthrie and they're unrehearsed and they're super ragged and um and the sessions with cisco and sonny and son i mean cisco and woody and sonny terry um you know for their time in the 1940s these are racially integrated recording sessions which is pretty unique for the time the sound that came out of all of that um when i first put it in my cassette you know deck was very like archaic and weird and almost like funny you know to me um but at that time in 10th grade i was like into bob dylan enough that i had some idea of who woody guthrie was or sure. that he was important you know but i you know never listened to it before but you know once i listened through that tape a couple of times it became like all i listened to and it's still the quality of music that means the most to me shares with those Woody Guthrie and Cisco Houston and the Sanitary Records. Uh, it shares the same qualities of this like really like ragged, raw, down home, rootsy, rusty, yeah. <laughs> like honest, um, handmade music. Uh, and I just fell in love with that. And um, and that led me um listening to that tape over and over and over again and wanting to know more about who these people were um led me in a bunch like if you start with Woody Guthrie it takes you in a bunch of different directions right okay. um if you want it to so um one of those is um like Lead Belly and Pete Seeger and Alan Lomax and all the field recordings that he was doing. And um, then there's like the folk revival of the fifties and sixties and all these people who were influenced like Bob Dylan and others who were influenced by Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly and Pete Seeger and all of those. And I discovered, you know, and then there's blues music and bluegrass music. And uh, what really blew my mind um, was the uh, Folkways record label. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that's Smithsonian, right? Yeah, now Smithsonian owns that stuff. So now gotcha. Smithsonian Folkways. But once upon a time, it was the Folkways label, started by this guy, Mo Ash, um, okay. who actually did make those records of Woody Guthrie and Cisco and others. Um, but, you know, he had the audacious idea of recording um, the sound of the world. Um mm-hmm. Uh, like capturing the entire world of sound and the and the entire world in sound, uh, which is pretty ambitious. Uh, but in the process, like, wow, he put out all sorts of stuff of field recordings, but also like sounds of, you know, um, I don't know. There's a famous one that's like, you know, the sounds of the North American tree frog. Uh, okay. So like literally just, you know, even nature sounds and sounds of machinery, sounds of the junkyard is one of his, uh, one of the folkways records. But, you know, that all opened up a world to me. Um, and uh, and the 60s, um, the folkways label um, also put out a lot of re- like documentary sound recordings of the civil rights movement as mm-hmm. it unfolded in real time. And so you have uh, this really wonderful and powerful documentary um, uh, b- b- portraits of the 
the music of the movement. Mm-hmm. And as put in the context, you'll hear some of the speeches and so forth too. Um, but all of that really just changed my life. And uh, to the question of like, we're, you know, sense of place and being from Alabama and all mm-hmm. of that. Uh, I don't know, growing up in Montgomery and um, not learning in school a whole lot about yep. local history, you know, um, but discovering recordings, you yep. know, from the civil rights movement and, you know, from my hometown and my home state and learning about the history through the music um, really uh yeah, I mean that that just really defined the person that I guess I was becoming as a teenager. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> so, see. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. That's also I I uh, relate a lot to that. I'm I'm super into this is I guess an understatement because again I didn't end up studying history, but like I love love history, but my favorite part about it is just like the like I mean, I mean obviously history is tangible, right? Cuz we can like read about it and we have um primary sources and things that we can use to connect with that but i i need something to like kind of engage all of my senses so i love old photos that's like the sight aspect of it of things but with history that's about all we can do right is like see things sometimes we can touch things but then the real kicker is being able to hear things so that, that's just like another dimension right and i love i didn't even know that they did stuff with like junkyards and machinery yeah. and fraud. but like i love like all of that ambient type stuff to get to some to somehow connect to the past mm-hmm. i love that and so mm-hmm. i totally get how you would i mean for me personally i love so this is really in some random insight into my life one night i was just <laughs> i forget what i was working on but i was just listening to old library of congress <laughs> recordings of like um quartets singers uh-huh. like gospel quartet singers and like just like even like the the way that it sounds like super tinny because yeah. of the, the the machinery that they were using to record those field recordings like i love it it just it's like a time machine to me so i totally yeah, get totally. that mm-hmm. totally love that also um you mentioned the civil rights thing so i have to test your knowledge on this are you familiar with Bernice johnson reagan oh, sure yeah 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 and so i have the same kind of experience so your she was my woody guthrie if you will so okay. my, yeah, there you go. My, yeah my aunt um introduced me to sweet honey in the rock when i was very very young um and I'm like looking at one of the books about Sweet Honey in the Rock right now. You know, Bernice Johnson Reagan became like a, you know, big um, folklorist and music historian. And so, yeah, I totally get it. Like I've been to follow yeah. her trajectory and like the way she's able to tell the story of uh, people in general, but more specifically African-American people in the South. Again, I feel like it's like all over the place because I'm geeking out, but I totally get what you're coming from. I totally yeah. get it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I, I acted like we didn't learn about the civil rights movement in, 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 in high school. And that's not totally true. I mean, we learned some things, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, you know, largely like, unfortunately today is in these broad strokes and like it's MLK, you know, and it's Rosa Parks. Like those are the two right. things that you know something about. And so to learn, um, that, um, like in Montgomery, what, you know, changed, the course of history was largely women, right? It was yeah. women that really fueled the bus boycott. Um, even if Martin Luther King's, you know, 
presence, you know, change things and change the way that we talk about it. And Birmingham, you know, kids, like the kids could change the world and like across the South and across the country that music. And so like, I mean, this is a really obvious thing to say maybe now, but like for me growing up learning that, oh, you know, it's ordinary people who changed the course of history. Exactly. You know, and that, you know, Bernice Johnson Reagan I think came out of Albany, right? So Albany, Georgia. And so Mm -hmm. she could speak a lot about the way that the movement sounded there. You know, there were certain songs, there were certain singers there, you know, there were certain issues that they were changing the lyrics to address in Albany, which is different somewhat than what was being sung in Montgomery. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and so like that really, I mean, that gives history so much more texture than your textbook kind of, portrait when you realize that like it sounds different history sounds different everywhere you go yeah made by ordinary people um civil rights history and the rest of it you know so Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. i'm with you yeah that's yeah it's me and that's when you know another like major interest of mine you know aside from music is oral history and same kind of principle of Mm -hmm. uh i was really um a little bit later as a teenager, um, you know, fell under the spell of Studs Terkel, um, the yeah. historian and longtime radio personality. And that to me was a radical idea to encounter that, you know, just uh, every person has uh, every voice matters, you know, mm-hmm. and it has, you know, something to teach us. And with his tape recorder, you know, he, I think, did his best to capture that and uh, that that also made a significant impact on the way that I thought about history and the world and and my role in it too. So, yeah. And we are getting afforded so much from folks like studs circle. Again, I have another one of his books (laughs) over, well, one of his books and an interview that he did with James Baldwin and like, Mm. like all this stuff is like so important. Like, you know, uh, people who are doing this work um, to kind of capture what these, what, what literally what the world sounds like. Yeah. Just ambient sounds, people's voices and their ideas and stuff. Man, I feel like we can do a whole show on that alone. Yeah, no. It's super I, good, though. <laughs> I don't know why I think sound, I'm glad you said it. I, I And I hear you about to change the subject. But I, just, I don't know why sound is so cool. Like, yeah. it excites me, too. Like, the idea of, like, yeah, just found sounds, whatever, you know. Um, yeah. And I guess you said it. It says, you know, among other things, a snapshot of the past or a window to to some other, you know, world than your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I wanted to highlight too. You're talking about the civil rights. I mean, so I, I was, I mean, I was going to change the subject, kind of, but I was going to go back <laughs> to say, no, that was honestly kind of like my quote unquote spe- uh, expertise or specialization in college. Like my 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 thesis was about the evolution of gospel music so there's that but also too distinctly i took david carter's civil rights movement class and he assigned us a paper and i don't know what everybody else's topic was but my topic was literally the the, the music of the civil rights movement right and so yeah. learning from that like you have the like the, the uh snick freedom freedom singers like if you want to make like tie connections and stuff like they were the ones who were helping raise funds for the civil rights movement by going around doing concerts and stuff like like music and sound again has a very pivotal part in like how these things have to develop and i think it's maybe taking for granted in a way so again kudos to you for being a part of the work of uh, bringing that to the forefront and i just obviously just like diving into that work and 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 being a champion for it because it it um 
Again, I do any like even like oral histories too. Like in my line of work, and like doing grants work with the humanities and stuff, everybody wants to do oral history, and people just kind of like roll their eyes, like, "Oh, another oral <laughs> history project." But I'm like, no, that's super important, you know. Especially as we, yeah. I mean, in this day and age, I don't want for all of our artifacts of the you know 21st century to be like TikTok videos and like tweets and stuff. Like, we would need to continue to have these oral history conversations and stuff. So, um. That all that to say, <laughs> support your local humanities. <laughs> you know, like have a little plug there for that. But uh, yeah, that's all that stuff is great. I'm glad that you two are a nerd like me mm-hmm. and didn't mind going into this obscure <laughs> music type stuff to help you know um, preserve it and and be a champion for it later down the road. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to see. Th- so it informs a lot of your work now. Um, but what I really want to get into before we get to like the writing and stuff is. You were, you said you're a radio host. Yeah. Well, and I, we have kind of covered it without covering it specifically. I yeah. have a music show on Saturdays. I've been doing it for um, like 11 years ish um, yeah. on Birmingham Mountain Radio, which is a station here. Uh, the show is called The Lost Child. And it. Um, Where'd that name come it, from? Well, it, um, as a reference, I don't expect people to get. But once in a while, we'll learn us something. <laughs> once in a while, somebody like will be like, "Oh, the lost child." Like for the handful of people who get it, they they um, it communicates something. But the lost child is a fiddle tune from West Alabama um, that a couple of brothers, Charlie and Ira Stripling, um, not to be confused with the Leuven brothers, Charlie and Ira Leuven from Sand Mountain, Alabama, which is a whole okay. other great story, but uh, lesser known today probably are the Stripling brothers. Uh, Charlie was a great fiddler from Pickens County, Alabama, and they took the train to Birmingham in 1928 and recorded in the basement. Uh, well, I don't know if it was in the basement, um, but recorded in either the Tutwiler or the Redmont Hotel, but one of these downtown hotels. There was okay. a um, sort of a makeshift temporary recording studio, hmm. um, and they cut a record called The Lost Child, which was, like I said, this you know West Alabama fiddle tune. And um, so when I first proposed this radio show, um, I was casting about for like, well, you know, what do I call it? And um, I don't know. For whatever reason, that came to mind. I almost called it like something like really obvious that would try to explain what this radio show is, you know. But uh, I'm happy that I scrapped the idea of being too obvious. Uh, and I went with The Lost Child simply because, for whatever reason, it kept asserting itself in my mind. But because I did kind of want something that, even if the reference is pretty obscure, like at <laughs> least to me, it suggested like a sense of place and a sense of local history. And even though I don't exclusively play music from Alabama, mm-hmm. um, I a sense of place and a sense of history are big parts of what that show is about and i like uh you know old time fiddle tunes they have the titles of fiddle tunes because they typically don't have song lyrics um Mm. so the the titles can be anything and there's some wacky song titles in the world (laughs) and uh so I like the poetry of fiddle tune titles and uh, something about the lost child was like evocative and mysterious in a way that, that I liked that allowed the show to not have to be defined. So, you know, I play, 
you know, I do play some old time fiddling and I do play some, I play a lot of those folk race records. I play Woody Guthrie. I play songs from the civil rights movement. I play rockabilly and blues and, you know, rhythm and blues and muscle shoals soul and kind of all kinds of things. I kind of call it like a down home roots music radio hour, but that doesn't mean anything either. Um, (laughs) Or it means something different to anybody. It's just an umbrella. Um, for the kind of stuff that I like to listen to and play. I mean, it's mostly old and it's mostly, um, it, it's mostly comes from the South. Um, and, uh, I don't know. Sure. That's, that's the radio show. So, it, so the radio show is an outlet for some of those musical interests that we've been talking about. Yeah. So can you tell me more about the Birmingham mountain radio in general though? Cause I, what's their reach? I mean, also just radio in general, like what, <laughs> who listens to the radio? And, <laughs> like, but like, so the, the fact that you're actually doing this again, is kind of, I'm not, not antiquated, but like, it's yeah. not as popular with, you know, how strong, like the streaming world is like, we get our, we can get our media a lot of different ways now, but you are like, so tell me more about how mountain Birmingham mountain radio does its work and like what their overall arching, you know, goal is, if you will, if you, again, not to put you on the spot, I know you're not. <laughs> well, I don't want to speak for the station as a whole, because I have my yeah. own little tiny one hour a week. Gotcha. Um, but the, um, you know, radio, I think radio is so cool in concept (laughs) like the history of radio is really neat um like the potential of radio is thrilling uh to me um radio today in our lifetime for most of the time that you and i have been on this planet has been kind of the same everywhere you go in the country and that's why it's sad um but you Mm know you have a handful of behemoth corporations that control um, what is playing on the radio all over the country. And that's a sad state. Um, So Birmingham Mountain Radio is unique in that it's independently owned. Um, There's some kind of relationship they have uh, with a a major broadcaster that allows us to be on the airwaves. But but I, I don't I can't I don't know all the ins and outs of how that works. Sure. But um but what I do know as I understand it is like one of the last kind of independent minded, kind of like kind of like rock stations um folded in Birmingham. Not folded, was bought out by Clear Channel or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um somebody's gonna tell me I'm getting the story all wrong, because uh, I wasn't <laughs> exactly there. But but a handful of uh a handful of guys in Birmingham. Uh, who were sad about that said, well, let's try to, you know, fill that space somehow. And they mm-hmm. started it online uh, mm-hmm. with an uh, online only radio station called Birmingham Mountain Radio. Uh, I had, done, like I say, I'm, I love radio. And um, one of the only places in the world or in this country that you can find like independent and original and idiosyncratic and like weird radio is college radio stations right yeah yeah (laughs) in in birmingham like there's a there's i don't understand why there's no college radio station presence Uh, uab doesn't have a a college radio station Uh, the the local npr station is affiliated with uab but there's no like like you know college kids behind the mic radio station interesting really sad yeah Uh, 
But, uh, but you know, in, when I was in college, I was on radio for three years. And when I was in grad school, I was on radio for another two or three years. So, like, yeah. I had, by, then, by the time I moved to Birmingham, I uh, just loved doing stuff on radio. Yes. And so there was, noth- there was no place to do stuff on radio for, like, just an independent, weird, oddball kind of show. Mm-hmm. And But then I saw an article that there was going to be this, like, independent radio station uh online um so i didn't really know anything about it other than that so um i've been like trying to figure out how do i get back on the radio and i sent them <laughs> letter and some you know i sent them some things that i'd written and um and lo and behold i got on the radio and then about after a year of that it actually you know went on the, the terrestrial airwaves so you can still hear it online anywhere around the planet but it's yeah. uh, local it is 107.3 fm so it is fun to be on the actual radio again nice that's awesome so and so you you actually go into the studio and you the dj or yeah yeah <laughs> i don't want to like pull back the curtain too much oh, okay okay it's, because it's not as glamorous as you might think. Uh, like in all in these college radio stations, you know, I was surrounded by, I would bring in like my own crate of CDs and records and stuff, but I'd be surrounded by these massive libraries of records. Sure. Um, now you just come in with your flash drive of music. Yeah. Or you're not even a flash drive anymore. You just email it or whatever. It's on the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it's not uh, like I know what I'm going to play on Saturday before. Sure. You know, I, I figured it all out rather than kind of the older school way of just like frantically running around and queuing up this record. And then while that plays, queuing up the CD, which is really fun. Yeah. Uh, but but this is something different and, and is also really fun because I do. Uh, I have kind of fallen in love in a way with the um, sort of. Yeah, taking the time to program it carefully and yeah, stuff. So no, so I mean, I definitely can appreciate that. Um, it, it, I mean, I don't know how people feel about playlists in general these days, but I, the the few people in my life I know, some people who are very very passionate about like making curating a playlist and curating an experience based on like the songs and then maybe like tell a story with it or something like that. So I mean. I think it's incredible the stuff that you're doing. I think it's pretty impressive. So uh, kudos to you again for for that and and endeavoring to do it because again it's kind of like a lost art. Um, and I think people who you're like kind of like a culture bearer in that way, <laughs> you know, just like by continuing to uh, do this this tradition, this like auto audio tradition in the face of this incredible like commercialized technologically driven type experience so um it's 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 good that you are doing that and curating such niche too <laughs> music as well <laughs> do you know if like where you might stand with like within like the country if there are other uh shows like yours um i don't you know i don't know <laughs> I, I will say one thing that's cool about uh like social media you know i sure. am connected to uh other djs uh, and to listeners you know in other parts of the country um who with shared interests um so i like that aspect of it um but i yeah i i don't really know how to answer the question otherwise but but it is cool to be in touch with people um yeah yeah who who have like interests uh whether they're you know also djs or just listeners or whatever yeah cool so 
if anybody's listening and you're into this kind of thing, you're into what what Bergen's into, by all means, find a way to reach out to him and connect. I'm envisioning envisioning like um a, a folk life radio conference happening soon out of this conversation that's what i hope happens um but we'll get there eventually uh, but so let's take a detour from your music okay. experience right. and getting into your writing so you i guess have been writing all this time because you have been in academia a little bit and they require you to write stuff but you've actually taken a step further and gone and published some stuff so tell us about um well i do know there's there's one book about birmingham jazz it's called Doc, right? Mm-hmm. Is it your first publication, or was it something before that I don't know about? That... Doc is the first, yeah. Okay, cool. So tell it us is. about about uh, your first publication. Okay, so um, Doc uh, is the story of Frank Doc Adams, who was a jazz musician in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Uh, he passed away in 2014. Uh, this book came out in 2012. Um and um was speaking of oral history of oral history um well speaking of a couple things we've been talking about um one is this idea i mean what what really draws me to the music is music that does you know speak to its um sense of place and a sense of history and all that stuff we've been talking about mm-hmm. um and so like i'm really interested in um music traditions that like really reflect very specific communities right um and then muscle shoals is a really famous now example of mm-hmm. you know what was it about this little un you know unlikely spot in north alabama that <laughs> produced this super creative vital music community that created some of the like best records in the history of popular music, um, you know, and shaped the sound of American music and a lot like why muscle souls, Alabama and people have written about me and, you know, great documentary film about that and all that kind of stuff. Um, But there are communities, as you know, like all over the world that for whatever reason, the right confluence of time and place and people and weather and whatever (laughs) socioeconomic conditions create this moment um, that produces uh, something really unique. And Birmingham, um, among other things, um, has a really unique jazz history. Um, So, uh, (laughs) but, so, so that's one thing. Another thing is the theme of oral history. So, but I need to tell you more about Doc. So, Doc Adams um, was born in 1928. He uh, grew up as part of this very um, fertile Birmingham jazz tradition, uh, which also produced. Erskine Hawkins and the, all the members of his band, the Erskine Hawkins Orchestra, it produced Sun Ra, uh, it produced a lot of musicians that um, the world doesn't know the names of, but Birmingham musicians performed on the sidelines of sure. Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, you know, Billie Holiday, like every jazz hero that you know, mm-hmm. there's Birmingham musicians on the sidelines, right? Um, often behind the scenes, maybe as arrangers, maybe as, you know, um, sidemen, session musicians, whatever. Um, Doc Adams came of age, uh, you know, through that tradition. Um, 
He he did play briefly with Duke Ellington. Um, he did play with Sun Ra uh, back in the mm. 1940s before Sun Ra became Sun Ra when he was still Sonny Blunt and leading a band here in town. Um, and uh, Doc went to Howard University and um, in the 1940s. And after playing a bit with Duke Ellington, he found his way back to Birmingham and um, began a long career in Birmingham City Schools as a music director. Uh, he taught uh, the band. He directed the band at Lincoln Elementary for mm-hmm. uh, for many years, and then directed the music programs for Birmingham City Schools for many years after that. Wow! And then. Um, uh, was one of the first class of inductees uh, to the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame in 1978, um, uh, along with Erskine Hawkins and posthumously Fess Watley, who was Doc's teacher and the teacher of many, many local jazz musicians. Um, when I met Doc, it was uh, like 2008 or so, um, and he was still super active. He mm-hmm. was... Um, the director of education and uh, community outreach or something like that at the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame. He gave tours at the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame, um, which since the days in which he had been, it's one of its first inductees, you know, eventually that became this whole facility and, you know, cultural performing arts space and, and museum. And um, I, you know, after moving to Birmingham, Eventually, one day during the summer, because I'm on teacher schedule, walked in <laughs> um, the door of the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame because I was curious. I didn't know anything about Alabama jazz history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I certainly didn't know anything, at least, about like Birmingham's jazz history and what yeah. makes it specific and unique. Um, so, <laughs> so to tell the whole story, so I, the first day I ever went to the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame, I just walked in off the street and um, was greeted by a receptionist who said, you know, would you like to take the tour? And I said, sure. And she asked me if I wanted like a self-guided tour or if I wanted to take a tour with the tour guide. And I was by myself, right? And I just, you know, I just want to see it by myself. Like I didn't know. I'm, I don't love tours uh especially <laughs> one-on-one you know it just felt like i would be trapped you know yeah. so i said no i'll just show i'll just look around myself and um and and i will say this too um at that time to see the museum by yourself admission is two dollars to see hmm. that take the tour admission was three dollars which says a lot about the sort of mission of the alabama jazz hall of fame which mm-hmm. is to make this history and to make this music as accessible as possible, you know, mm-hmm. to anyone. And so I value that about them very much. But I had the choice, you know, of a dollar's different whether difference whether I wanted to take the tour. Uh, and I said no. And she said, Are you sure? And I said, Yeah. And she said, Are you but but are you sure? And she said, because the the tour guide is Frank Adams, Doc Adams. He's, you know, 80 years old. He played with Duke Ellington and Sun Ra, and he'll bring his horn out and he'll play, you know, some music for you and um and tell you some stories. And I said, sure. <laughs> right. And so she picked up the phone and said, you know, Doc, you have a visitor. And she told me to go in and uh and to wait. Uh so I went into the museum and I waited and looked around. And I remember this day very much. Um because it was really my introduction to all of this. Um, and, you know, looking at the exhibits and seeing a lot of names that at the time I didn't know. Um, 
and um you know thinking that and and literally on the walls there would often be you know uh lists of names it'll be you know um educators it'll be a list of names it'll be sidemen a list of names or uh, arrangers and so forth uh, mm-hmm. and uh you know i felt looking at all of this information either i don't know uh nearly as much about jazz as i thought i did <laughs> or i don't know um or like i this is a different concept of fame you know this hall of fame sure. that yeah. i know and um so I was already curious, and then Doc Adams walked out of the back of the museum, carrying his saxophone in his hand. And what anybody who ever encountered Doc would know is that he just like poured himself out to um, to anybody who was in front of him. And he was a phenomenal storyteller. In his 80s, he was still a phenomenal musician. And so for like an hour and a half, Doc walked me around the museum. He told me the history. He told me a lot of personal stories along the way. He played some music. You know, he talked about Tuxedo Junction. He played a little bit of Tuxedo Junction. He talked (laughs) about like the development of bebop. And he played, you know, this is where that comes from and play something. Uh, And what your podcast listeners don't know is that I'm like making these notions. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how to play a saxophone, but I'm making movements with my fingers Uh, (laughs) so um he uh yeah so by the end of that tour like i was totally smitten um because i mean i felt um you know i was late in catching up you know doc adams was not a secret but it was new to me that you know who is this person and why don't i know about him and 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 why haven't i heard anything of this he had sold me on the fact that birmingham did have this significant jazz history History, sure. uh, and why don't I know anything about it? And so to circle back to the whole oral history thing. So, you know, that has been historically um, a way for me to like, it, it provides a excuse for you to sit at the feet of someone you yeah. admire. It's yeah. like, if you know, just say, Hey, can I record you telling your life story? Um, and usually you just have to sit back and not say much and people will just talk. And so, uh, that's all I wanted. I mean, I wanted for one thing to, 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 to do anything that I could to like create a document of him, mm-hmm. um, of, of his voice, of him telling his stories, you know, and that can go into some, some archive or whatever. Like I didn't really have a goal for it, but I wanted to at least take the opportunity to record his voice, but also to use that as an excuse to just kind of bask in his presence and his wisdom and, and learn from him. So it was a whole year later uh, that I called him up. This is a really long way to answer your question. <laughs> what is this book? I should have just told you what the book is. I haven't even really said that. But uh, Doc... No, <laughs> book, it's like uh, it's part of the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's Doc's story, in his own words. That's what I should have said. Sure. Um, so, so, but how it came about was like a, a year after that first meeting, um, I did a bunch of research because I wanted to do an interview with him. And I knew from our in from our from my tour that aside from his own musically interesting life, um, there was a lot of other really interesting and mm. significant 
pieces to his life. Uh, his family um, was a politically prominent African-American family in Birmingham. His brother was the first black justice of the Supreme Court of the state of Alabama, Oscar Adams Jr. Their okay. dad was the publisher and editor of the Birmingham Reporter, which was one of the like top leading African-American newspapers in Alabama at the start of the 20th century. He was a co-owner, his father, of the Birmingham Black Barons baseball team. Like, there's a lot of history in this family, um, physical and otherwise. Yeah. I knew Doc was teaching at Lincoln Elementary School in 1963 when the kids were, you know, streaming out into the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And and that he had had not a relationship with, but that he had crossed paths with Martin Luther King. Like, his story touches on so many pieces of American history. Like yeah. so I had gone home and done a lot of research, gone to the libraries, tried to learn what I could about his family. And I, a year later, called him at the office of the Hall of Fame and asked if I could record an interview with him. And, um, and of course, he had no idea who I was, you know, because from why, you sure. know, <laughs> a year ago, why would he? But gracious as always to a stranger was like, come on down. And so I came with my tape recorder and I had six pages of handwritten questions, um, which I did not need and which I did not get to for weeks because I hit record <laughs> and Doc says, I was born on Groundhog's Day, February 2nd, 1928. And then for two hours, he just talks into the microphone, um, telling the story of his life and telling it in the most like specific detail sure. uh, like engaging not tedious like yeah, i mean yeah. engaging but like an intimate detail so that by the end of two hours i have not said a word <laughs> and he uh says finally but we're gonna have to have another session next week <laughs> because at that point in the story he was about to graduate from high school with a letter of recommendation by Sun Ra uh, to Howard University. And it was wow. like, but we'll have to have a session next week, which I was thrilled, of sure. course, to come back and do it again next week. And the next week, we did the same thing for two hours without prompting. He talked about his four years at Howard University and said, well, we're going to you know, have to do this again next week. And so at like six weeks into it, uh, which in the grand scheme of things is not all that long because I went into this, you know, I, I I said that I'd like to write an article about him because that kind of gave us a reason to mm -hmm. have meeting. Um, but after six weeks, I said, you know, I have no idea how to um, where to begin right. an article, you know, <laughs> but I think that this should be a book. Yeah. And so, yeah, for like a year and a half, every week we met with the tape recorder and he told his story. And that's what the book, Doc, is. So it's his story and his words based on weekly interviews for a year and a half. And, um, yeah, that's that's a really long answer to your question. No, but it's so crazy because <laughs> it started out all with a $3 tour that sounds like it should yeah. have been way more than $3, first of I all. <laughs> <laughs> which is incredible um can you where where is the alabama well it's on fourth avenue north in birmingham um 
so that's very historic street. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was, you know, under segregation, that was the, you know, cultural hub in Black Birmingham. Right. It's right across the street from the Masonic Temple, which uh, was, you know, at that time, the colored Masonic Temple, um, which was on the second floor ballroom where Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway and Count Basie and like all the major bands would yeah. come by the Masonic Temple. But also, and moreover, Local bands like that of Fess Watley and Sonny Blunt, the future Sun Ra, would play that Masonic Temple stage. You know, down the street was the Frolic Theater, uh, which was a vaudeville theater. Um, so it's very, and the Carver Theater is where the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame That's is. That's it. It's, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's in the heart of this very, it's part of the, today, it's part of the, you know, historic civil rights district. Um and yeah, it's just in the thick of of that. So even that on that first tour, I remember, you know, he would he would use uh, he would say right across the um, street, you know, the, and we were upstairs where you could look out the window and see the Masonic Temple. And he yeah. would talk about playing there as a 14 year old in the 40s, you know, um, so that's tremendous. That is so in, just so I'll, I can make sure I know where I am and you can see <laughs> that I'm kind of a fatty patty. This is also near. <laughs> Green Acres restaurant. Oh right? yeah, this is yeah. This is where Green Acres is. I just uh, having to having to visualize. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm in the right <laughs> area. So you are right. Yeah, the Jazz Hall of Fame, Carver Theater. It's like five doors down from the gotcha. the, the next block from Green Acres. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. Um, and so it sounds like this book happened as an accident. <laughs> like totally you weren't as even, an accident. You weren't even intending on doing a book, but I'm glad that it sure. happened that way. Well, and I will say that I was super conscious sitting across from Doc, who was, if I hadn't made it clear, like an extraordinary human being, um, just an incredible person uh, and such a gift for speech, like a great storyteller. Um, and I would sit there like, how, why am I, how am I here? Yeah. You know? Um and, uh, you know, Doc himself would say that, uh, you know, Sun Ra would say that like the cosmos directed <laughs> these two paths to come together. I don't know why it happened or how it happened or whether the cosmos were involved, but um, but I felt like this serious obligation um, that for whatever reason, I happen to be sitting here every week with a tape recorder um, and therefore... Um, this is an obligation to somehow like share this, to put this out there. Um, and it was an obligation that was a joyful one. Like, I mean, I, I don't no negative association connotations to the word, but sure. you know, I through whatever fluke it was that I happened to, um, even meet him the day that I walked in, yeah, you know, yeah. he wasn't there every day. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm just grateful for it. But of course, since then, you know, now I know how much he meant to so many people. I mean, if you meet anybody who knew Doc, they will, sure. um, they will go on and on about him as well. But that's specifically within Birmingham, though, right? Like, this isn't necessarily like a right. Yeah, but and that's that's beautiful and that's great and everything. But I, I'm the type of person. This is honestly, this is the reason why this podcast even exists literally because my friend was making music and I felt like everybody in the world needed to hear about this, his music and like, <laughs> you know, and so that's why I feel about, you know, this, but I mean, I guess everybody can't be world famous. I suppose. I don't know, whatever. It's, it's not even about fame. It's literally just like a, the knowledge that these people have done these things and their right. life stories. Um, but doc still, I guess, remains kind of more so of a local figure. Like you don't, right. 
Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Because, and he did what, you know, what, uh, what a lot of others have done. He yeah. made a choice to come back home and sure. teach. And he fell in love with teaching and with sure. kids. And um, yeah, that's not the way that you become world famous, yeah. right? Uh, that is a way that you can change the culture of your community. I mean, yeah. Doc very much did. Yeah. Um, so yes, his impact, he had at least a very significant local impact, but mm-hmm. right, that his name is one that's not um, that's not known uh, yeah. really in other places. And that's one of the reasons that I was really compelled that, you know, I think this name should be known other places. This, this story and this this voice. And, you know, speaking of that $3 tour, you know, I hope, you know, I imagine if nothing else, that the book could be an extension of the tour. If you were lucky enough to go to the Hall of Fame and hear Doc speak, then you could kind of take more of that story home with you. Or when the day came that there were, there were no more tours, or if you were never lucky enough to meet him and yeah. have that then here's the next best thing and it is the next best is not as good as being in the room with doc by a long shot um and oral history never is but especially with a uh the personality is captivating uh, yeah uh, but at least it's something sure (laughs) so Uh, um what was the reaction the response to to the publishing of this book from him and his family specifically like so you is that you published it two years before he died it sounds like correct yeah. okay yeah. so he did get a chance to see it published yeah um, what was that like after the fact yeah lee uh that was really special to get to share that with him because uh, he was yeah. just he loved it i mean he um he loved it um and and so did i and i'm grateful that um uh yeah that we got to go and do like for lack of better word readings to they weren't really readings but yeah. we would book events together nice. uh, so i would you know say a few words about dot well he would play like it would start with him playing he played saxophone and clarinet alto sax and clarinet and so he would play for you know a little while and then i would give a like very brief biography introduction and then he would just talk about whatever, just like <laughs> our interviews, whatever he wanted to off the top of his head. You know, he would just talk and talk. And golly, that was so much fun. Yeah. Um, so we had to do that a fair amount. And the book was published by University of Alabama Press. And when it came out, they did a great job of inviting, you know, Doc up to Tuscaloosa to do, um, to talk to various classes. Mm. Uh, and they did a big um, show at the, uh, I think it's called the Bama Theater in Tuscaloosa. Sure. Birmingham Heritage Band, which Doc played in, played. And um, yeah, it was a great time. So there was a lot, there was a lot of celebration um that that he and I together were able to participate in. And and I'm grateful for that. That is awesome. And I, I don't know. Yeah. So you have those recorded recordings yourself. Like where is like if you wanted to hear the the actual sure. recordings themselves, like is that like in your personal archive or is it, <laughs> like I'm well, just curious because I'm I'm, I'm kind of like, again I'm nosy and I want to. <laughs> well, that is something we haven't talked about yet. Today, sure, sure. Which is uh, so this new nonprofit is the Southern Music Research Center. Okay. And, um, that uh, w- 
the like center of the Southern Music Research Center is an online space. It's an online archive of oral history recordings, you know, kind of lost and found sounds, um, uh, photographs, flyers, like ephemera, all kinds of material related to all kind of music um, from across the South. And um, that website, that archive went online in April. Um, so it's still very new and it's still actively growing. Um, but it went online initially with like a handful of about 10 um, collections. And one of those collections is a Frank Adams collection uh, of oral history interviews. And gotcha. um, that is something uh, something that I have done since Doc passed away. Uh, pretty often is go back to the University of Alabama and um, a friend of mine teaches a class uh, and is very gracious to ask me and come and share some of Doc's story and with his students. And the thing that always comes up is um, the problem is, as I said, it's a it's a sec it's a far second. I mean, I don't want to disparage the book. I don't want to come off that way. But it's a second best to hearing Doc's voice. You know, sure. what's missing? I guess I'll put it this way: what's missing is when you're reading the book, and I hope you will, Doc, the story of Birmingham jazz band. Um, when you're reading the book, it uh, what well, you don't know that even in a really serious story, Doc is probably laughing. Yeah, and he is like. He was like mostly bald at the time, and he's like clapping his hands against his <laughs> bald head at, at, to punctuate, you know, the moments of the greatest laughter. And you see, you miss, you know, you miss all of that delivery, yeah. um, the printed page. And so um, I'm really happy that in, in developing this archive, that's afforded me the opportunity to go back through a ton of tapes and I certainly yeah. haven't gone back through all of them but I've you know started going back through some and pulling out some excerpts um, and some highlights um, so that people can go online and just hear Doc talk so yeah nice. so there's, there's a Frank Adams collection awesome And that's part one of my conversation with Bergen Matthews, founder and director of the Southern Music Research Center. The music featured in this episode is special because it was all sourced from the Southern Music Research Center. The introduction was a recording of Lonnie and Russell Ward performing the traditional North Carolina folk song, Tom Dooley, at the Greensboro, North Carolina Appalachian Folk Festival in the 1960s. You heard more music from that event in this episode. Robert Edwards, Russell Ward, and Charles Moody performing She'll Be Coming Round the Mountain and Buffalo Gals. Both of these tunes are from the Southern Music Research Center's Jack Guy collection. That fine drumming is Herbert Bryant. Of course, you're all familiar with old Pop Williams at the bass. The Diddy Playing Now is an undated performance by the heart of this episode, Birmingham's own Frank Doc Adams and his band. This recording features Doc playing clarinet and saxophone, drummer Herbie Bryant, 
bassist Ivory Pops Williams, and other unidentified musicians and vocalists performing I'll Never Cry Again and What's Your Story, Morning Glory. Be sure to explore these recordings and more at www.southernmusicresearch.org. Thanks again to the Alabama Humanities Alliance for their continued support of the Higher Ground Society podcast. Be sure to check out the work that they're doing across the state at alabamahumanities.org. Next, subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to be notified for part two of my chat with Bergen, coming later this week. I promise you do not want to miss it. Until then, be easy. Be easy.